From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Agency grades are mostly flat in the newest 11th FITARA scorecard. 16 CFO Act agencies kept the same grades as the 10th scorecard. Three went up and five went down. FedScoop reports eight agencies got A's in the newest category, transitioning to the new EIS telecom contract. The Defense Department will pump $2.5 billion into the 5G spectrum hunt. The National Spectrum Consortium will distribute the money through an other transaction authority. Defense News reports the consortium has almost 400 members already. The hackers behind the SolarWinds breach didn't get to taxpayer personal data, according to the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration. IGJ Russell George writes his office learned about the hack on December 13th. FCW reports George writes to members of Congress his office has been working with the IRS's Computer Security and Incident Response Center since then. The newest 30-year Navy shipbuilding plan includes a path to 355 ships. It costs $34 billion a year by 2025. Rear Admiral Sinclair Harris, U.S. Navy retired as National Vice President of Military Affairs at the Navy League. Sink, welcome. It's great to talk to you again. Is it too late, though, just about three weeks out from the beginning of an entirely new administration for this shipbuilding plan? Uh, good morning, uh, Francis. Thank you for having me. Uh, absolutely not. Uh, as you know, uh, no plan survives first contact with the enemy, especially ones in the budget. Um, and the shipbuilding plan is an ongoing process. We put one out every year. Um, it's always a challenge. Uh, the uh, last time, I believe, we were targeting 26 billion dollars. Uh, we've seen the Secretary of Defense, we've seen the Acting Secretary of Defense, we've seen uh, the Chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff and numerous others continue to push for a larger fleet in order to engage our adversaries and competitors um, in uh, the world and the fight that we see today and going in the future. So I do not think, I think that it, it becomes the first salvo for the new administration to work from. What is, and, and the 355 is the number that we've been talking about now for a number of years regarding the top line of the fleet. But I wonder if we don't do a service in the media, my colleagues in the media, of understanding what that means. You have educated me well over the years that the top line number doesn't mean nearly as much as what composes it, what gets us to that 355. What's your sense of that sink and what the threat landscape as it evolves will mean underneath the top line number? So the 355 number, I believe most considered a minimum number um, at, at, at that time. And we've done the, um, uh, fleet structure assessment, the integrated one with the Marine Corps. We've got some great thoughts between uh, CNO Gilday and between Commandant uh, Berger. Uh, and, and then we had a reassessment done by CAPE and OSD, and the number went higher than that. Uh, the, the real, and, and so in terms of the, the envi threat environment, uh, we'll look at China and what they're doing. Okay, and their fleet is growing by leaps and bounds. Look at Russia and what they're doing. And they're uh, trying to interfere with uh, our operations in the Black Sea and places like that. The, the, the 
plan is directionally correct. The number uh, is is got to be more than what it is now. And the makeup, uh, we have to have some flexibility. We got to bring in unmanned uh, vehicles because the cost to sustain our traditional fleet is far too high. Uh, so it's going to be a mix and it's going to evolve. Regarding that integration sync, what's the, your sense of the uh, level of integration and, and the, de the, the success of the integration of the Navy fleet plan with, for example, the Coast Guard fleet? You mentioned Russia and China are uh, one of the areas, one of the theaters that they're uh, stepping up operations is in the Arctic. That's primarily the Coast Guard's responsibility from the United States perspective. And uh, we've, I've spoken with you and others at the Navy League on a number of occasions regarding the Merchant Marine Fleet. What, what's your sense of how well we're doing as an enterprise at understanding where we need to have ships in the water all over the world and in all kinds of capacities and capabilities? Uh, great question, as usual. Um, you know that recently a uh, new tri-service strategy uh, was promulgated, signed by Secretary of the Navy, um, and uh, and then signed by all the current uh, commandant, you know, you know, Marine Corps and Coast Guard, and and there are a lot of people who are are saying different things about the strategy and all that. But the bottom line is that the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard is very well in sync with each other in terms of trying to project the right mix of force going forward. The Navy understands the importance of the Arctic and uh, the importance of icebreakers in uh, that part of the equation. Uh, the Coast Guard operates with the Navy uh, in multiple places, uh, South China Sea being one of them. Uh, so the, and the Marine Corps has, has leaped out uh, with uh, very bold plans and has been fully integrated with the shipbuilding and the development of strategy and uh, the plan. So I think that it's at a very high level and they work all the time. What's important, do you think, to not be lost in the transition that's happening in the coming weeks, Sink? What would you like to make sure that the Navy, Marine Corps, all the sea services are doing to ensure continuity of operations in, uh, among the people who are leaving and the people who are coming in in the new Biden administration? I would tell you, I have absolutely no fear um, that uh, of uh, the professionals in the Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, uh, uniform and civilian in terms of continuity of operations. They made it through COVID, for goodness sakes. Uh, and they'll make it through this transition plan. Um, the, the biggest concern I have is Congress. Congress has got some really tough, tough things to handle. They've got to figure out uh, how to take care of our people through the pandemic and all the ramifications of it. Uh, they've got infrastructure challenges that have to be addressed. We've got uh, climate change challenges that have to be addressed that are tied to the infrastructure and tied to uh, COVID. All this in light of a geostrategic environment where our Navy must grow in order to meet, uh, and I say Navy, Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard, and Merchant Marines must grow to meet the challenge that we see before us posed by China, posed by Russia, and others. Sink Harris, great to have you back as always. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. Happy New Year. Up next, the data silos that are killing the data strategy. Straight ahead on Government Matters, four steps to fix the disconnect. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. Gaps in data and information sharing across government may be partially to blame for the solar winds hack. Part of the problem, too, is culture. Jane Wiseman is CEO of the Institute for Excellence in Government and a senior fellow at the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard University. Jane, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. How are agencies and organizations that are sharing data well doing it? What are the secrets? So the secrets are actually no different than the secrets of success in anything. Two things, vision and persistence. So in terms of vision, I think it matters both at the senior executive level, whether that's a cabinet secretary, a deputy secretary, a mayor, county exec, governor, that the senior official has a vision for data. Um, but also the person running a data project needs to have a vision that can be clearly articulated, that can be made real for people who are day-to-day -day doing the work in the trenches. So vision matters at the executive level and at the project management level. And then um, I think diligence matters because data sharing is hard. You know, one of the best examples is the Allegheny County Human Services Data Warehouse. It took a decade to build it. It took some outside funding. It took some really uh, getting to crisis level with some child welfare problems to really force innovative thinking. But if you think about one of the greatest successes as having been something that didn't happen in a day, it happened in a decade, um, you've got to be patient because there are always going to be people who say, can't get it done. And, um, you know, I think. If you take these two ideas, vision and persistence, you can apply them to, you know, running your first marathon or renovating your home or making government better by sharing data. I'm going to go then in reverse order on your recommendations. The fourth one that you make uh, goes to that vision, I think. Agency managers and data leaders at all levels of government should champion data sharing efforts. Define champion. What does that person do or what does that group of people do to advance this issue? Right. So I've often said that hiring data leaders is part art and part science because if you hire someone who's just good at being in the weeds with data, they can't talk about it, they can't explain it, they can't do something called data storytelling. And you need to be able to motivate the team, you need to be able to inspire people to work hard by telling them exactly where they're going. Because I often find that projects that get stalled are those that don't have a clear focus on why are we doing it? What's the outcome we're, we're aiming for? You know, there was a, a book I read a while back that uh, was about a, a rowing team and they wanted to get to the Olympics and they weren't doing very well. And they always, they had this one question that was, will it make the boat go faster? And so if you can, get to a one sentence vision of what are we trying to achieve with our data project? Are we trying to improve safety? You know, make the roads safer, make children who are uh, likely to be subject to uh, violence or abuse, are we trying to get them to protected status? Are we trying to improve school attendance rates for homeless children? Whatever it is, like what's the goal? And if we can be really clear about why we're wrestling with the data. You know, in Massachusetts, I live in Boston and in Massachusetts, we have a lot of smart people and, and um, we also have a lot of um, what I call data mining, which is, no, it's mine, you can't have it. <laughs> and our governor 
when we had the opioid crisis a number of years ago, our governor and our legislature got to the point where they said, we've got to share data. And so 23 agencies who had always said, no, the statute won't allow me. No, it's law enforcement confidential. No, it's patient protected HIPAA. Well, 23 agencies were able to share data. They were um, behind a firewall. The data was combined on an individual level on the fly. Even the data scientists running the algorithms didn't get to see the con combined data. They could only see the results of the data. It was really a, a masterful thing. But the legislature required that these seven data questions about why people were dying of opioid overdoses, those questions had to be answered by a deadline. And I'll tell you what, that's a great way to be focused on what's the outcome that we need to achieve by when, and you know, when the legislature says you have to do it, it's very important uh, when the governor and the legislature stay focused and uh, consistently check in on progress. All of a sudden things get done by the deadline. The third recommendation uh, in as we go backwards is that the nonprofit philanthropic sector should proactively support intergovernmental data sharing efforts. I want to go to number two and number one uh, in the time that we have left because they both involve Congress and uh, uh, soon to be a new president should establish funding and capacity building mechanisms and uh, create a policy and governance framework. How far along are those efforts with things like the federal data strategy and the efforts that Congress has made to put money behind the federal data strategy? You know, it's wonderful the pro progress that's been made recently with the Data Act, with uh, federal data strategy. Um, and I think we see in COVID how important data is. And I'll give two examples. One is the city of Boston, the other is the state of Virginia, where the governor, the mayor, were able to stand up COVID data dashboards like that. In government, that means in a couple of days or a week, as opposed to in a decade. Why? Because the infrastructure was already built behind the scenes. And, you know, there's never a ribbon cutting ceremony for a data warehouse. It's not sexy. It's never front page above the fold or, you know, it's never trending on Twitter. Ooh, you know, look, the data infrastructure is there. Well, I'll tell you what, without the data infrastructure, we can't move forward. We can't improve data quality. We can't fix the problems without having the back end infrastructure. And so that's something that I think needs to be prioritized. The other thing, data literacy. We don't even know how bad it is in government, but in the private sector, the most recent survey of the Fortune 1000 showed that while 99% of companies are investing in big data and AI projects, investing big money, only 27% have had any real culture change toward data. Why? Because by and large, senior executives feel like they're too old to learn this stuff. So the challenge in government is significant to get middle and senior level managers comfortable with data, to get the data infrastructure built. And then I think we're gonna see, you know, COVID has been just horrible. It's devastated families and communities and businesses, but it's really given government inspiration to dig deep into data and to connect the pieces of data across the system. And I think we have momentum to keep that going. And I'm, I'm really excited about that possibility of the forward momentum. Jane Wiseman, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate your time today. Thank you. Coming next, the digital divide at the Department of Veterans Affairs and across government. Straight ahead on Government Matters, closing the generation gap at every agency. 
Don't forget, if you missed an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. New numbers from the Department of Veterans Affairs show only about 1% of the IT workforce at the agency is under the age of 30. Experts say a digital core would help create opportunities for recent college grads to work in IT in government. Nick Sinai is senior advisor at Insight Partners. He's former deputy chief technology officer, the Office of Science and Technology Policy at OMB. Nick, welcome. It's great to see you. Thanks for coming on. What would the structure of this look like? Is there a model for something like it in government already? Hey Francis, great to see you again. Uh, so the digital core is a new idea, and it's a, the, it's a proposal that uh, my co-author, Chris Huang, who's the co-founder of Coding It Forward, and I have, have put forward. But it's built on the work of a lot of different people uh, inside and outside of government. And, and the idea is a two-year fellowship uh, where recent college graduates and other skilled uh, technologists could come into federal service. Uh, and so it would be uh, essentially taking the coding it forward model and turning it into a two-year uh, federal service fellowship. So take, take me through that coding it forward model. How does that work and how would it be similar or different in the model that you're proposing in the government? Yeah, coding it forward, uh, uh, for those of you who don't know, it's a nonprofit. It was founded by several of my students um, and uh, has, has grown over the last four years. I think they've, they've placed uh, 200 uh, um, uh, fellows in, in about a dozen agencies. And they've had a lot of success with, with a cohort model, with uh, um, a high degree of technical mentorship and sponsorship, uh, both directly in the agencies that they, that they serve, but also bringing in USDS and Presidential Innovation Fellows and 18F and other parts of the civic tech uh, um, community to help mentor. So taking that and, and trying to bring that same sense of, of purpose, of community, of cohort, um, uh, to, to a, a new crop of, of uh, college graduates and other skilled technologists who, who want to serve. Where does this fit into that landscape that you just touched on? U.S. Digital Service, 18F, the agencies have uh, their own uh, digital cores now, uh, most of them do. Where, where, how does this fit in and where do these people slot in into those organizations? Yeah, so uh, USDS and, and Presidential Innovation Fellows are really mid-career programs designed for people to come in and serve, you know, one year, two year uh, uh, or more, uh, uh, that, that type of model. Uh, so this is really early career at the very beginning, um, you know, for, for a couple of years right out of, out of school. So. Um, I think there would be great uh, uh, synergy, um, and you probably would, would be able to have great partnership and, and, and have, have those kinds of mentors. Um, but think of this more as a tech-focused PMF with a lot of the community and, and uh, support model. What's the, what are the steps that are necessary for the incoming administration to implement something like this? Is this something that requires uh, something from Congress, or is this something that the new team would be able to implement on their own? Well, this is something that, that absolutely uh, an incoming Biden administration could get started on in, in year one or year two without Congress. Of course, uh, having congressional authorization and, and appropriation uh, helps with these types of things, uh, but, but you absolutely could get started. Um, so you could imagine using uh, the, the direct hire authority 
uh, that the past administration uh, um, got stood up a little bit further. Um, you can imagine using the recent graduates pathway. So using one of these, these hiring pathways, but essentially uh, working to stand up a, a, a new program office, maybe borrowing some of the learnings from the PMF, from, from PIF, uh, even the AAAS fellowship model, uh, bringing the best of, of, of all worlds to, to uh, a new program effort uh, where you would centrally uh, recruit and screen and replace uh, these digital core fellows. Are those models that you referenced good for also going out and finding the people? Structurally, it sounds like that would make a lot of sense uh, to use them as models within the operations of the government as an enterprise in the individual agencies. But as far as actually going out and identifying and recruiting the people to bring in, would those models work too? Yeah, I think there's, there's absolutely some, some learnings from uh, especially the Presidential Innovation uh, Fellows uh, model. Um, but coding at Ford has had a, a lot of success uh, attracting Generation Z. I mean, we have uh, several hundred thousand STEM graduates. Uh, we have 65,000 uh, um, computer science graduates. And, and if, if we put effort into it, we really can uh, bring, bring in the next generation of technologists and product managers and designers that look like America. And that's something that the Biden administration cares about. Um, and, and I think uh, with some intentionality, we can go out and, and, and reverse the, the numbers that we have, which are, are, are just, uh, there's just too few people under the age of 30. Uh, I think it's 6% uh, in federal service today. And so Generation Z wants to serve, uh, and especially those, those in technology. Um, and so we, we, have, we have to find a way to, to make this possible so they can come and and help uh, um, deliver better, simpler government services. Nick Sinai, thanks very much. It's great to have you back as always. Thank you, Francis, great to see you. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. And that's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC 7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose.